0: Good morning, church. I just love gathering to worship the Lord with you, you know? There's just absolutely nothing like it. There's nothing, nothing like it. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. while also the offering happens too. Luke chapter 22. I'm just going to give you uh, the big idea of what I want you to understand as we work through this. So the big idea is this, and this is we're we're going to deal with the Lord's Supper today, and uh, I hope I hope strengthen our understanding of the Lord's Supper. But um, the big idea is this: the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover meal for Christ's Church. The new covenant, or the, uh, the Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover meal for Christ's church. And, you know, as you've taken the Lord's table over the years, have, have you ever just wondered what in the world are we actually doing here when we do this? You know, sometimes, sometimes um, we'll say things like, I don't know, it just kind of seems like one of those formal things we're supposed to do, you know. Or... Um, and it's kind of devoid of meaning. And we don't even we don't know uh, exactly what, are these, what do these symbols really represent, and why are they given to us, and uh, why do we do this, and how often are we supposed to do this? Should we do it more? Should we do it less? Um, what's going on with this whole thing uh, that we call Holy Communion or um, the Lord's Supper? And uh, I want you to big picture... I want you to remember this. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover meal for Christ's church. Luke chapter 22, let's read in verses 1 through 20. And I'll seek to prove that big idea and then we'll deal with many truths related to the Lord's table. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Those two things are synonymous And uh, they are from Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. So for a long time, Israel has been celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. We dealt a lot with that last week, so not much this week he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. Isn't it heinous? They were were so glad to put Jesus to death. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Okay, So now, in in verse 1, kind of if you think like, You know how in a movie, oftentimes the shot setting is really big and wide first, and then it slowly zooms in? It's kind of how Luke has orchestrated this here. It's, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, verse 1. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on verse 7, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 14, it's going to say, and when the hour came right? Now we're in the moment where this meal is happening, okay? Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So God had prescribed a lamb without blemish to be sacrificed, and then the meal consumed. um, And there's a lot of details in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 that I won't get into right now, but then this meal consumed, and the whole point of this Passover meal was the um, remembrance of, it was a, it was a memorial day to remember that when they sacrificed the original Passover lamb in Egypt, when God was going to judge the firstborn of Egypt, and He was going to kill them in judgment of Egypt, And this was going to be what would propel uh, the salvation of Israel out of Egypt and their deliverance. That when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, there was instructions to eat it, but also to put blood over the doorposts. And God said, when I see that, I will pass over you. Your firstborn will not be struck down. You will be saved from this judgment. Okay. And so every year, they would eat this Passover meal. And just to give you an idea of how big of a thing this was, by 66 AD, so we're, we're quite a few years, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying in this moment, th- the day of where Jesus is, you know, we're 35 years later, 36 years later, give or take. In 66 AD, um, Josephus records something like 260, 270,000 lambs were actually sacrificed in the temple for the Passover. And we're talking about influx of the Jews to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and a massive, massive undertaking um, in order to memorialize how great it was that Israel was delivered from Egypt. That was the whole point of it. Okay, And um, so the day comes, and so... Jesus is now partaking of that meal, is going to partake of that meal with his disciples. So when he tells the disciples, go and prepare the Passover, it's go, get the lamb, prepare the meal, you know, and that's what's about to happen. That's been going on for a long time at this point. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. These are just these interesting details to me that it's hard to fully understand exactly why they're here except to remember this. Jesus is in control of everything about his suffering and death. Jesus is not just a kind of passive victim of what's happening in his suffering and death in Luke 22 and following, right? He is in control of all of it. And there's moments like this that picture him as the one actually reigning over uh, his suffering and his death for the salvation of his people. They said to him, "Where will you have us prepared?" He said to them, "Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you." It's just kind of an odd sign, you know. There's, there's going to be this man carrying a jar of water. That guy, go talk to him. He said to them, "Behold, when you have in, er, a man carrying a jar of water meets you, follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house." The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay, now, Jesus and the disciples are going to be in this room together. And now this, the meal is actually happening. In verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I just love that Jesus says that. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. you know? And I don't know why for some reason, for some of us, it's really difficult for us to embrace the goodness of God that would actually deal with our sins because God actually wants to be with us. That the goodness of God could actually be, it's, it's hard for us to get our mind around, the goodness of God could be so good that He would deal with our sin penalty because He actually wants to be with us. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. You know, this is the institution. You know, this is, the, this is the first Lord's Supper and the institution of it um, for the rest of human history until Christ comes. Do this. Celebrate this supper. You know, and, and if you remember, if you, if you notice, the language here is very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we read pretty much every time we take the Lord's Supper together. And so um, the Apostle Paul and Luke... Obviously had the same idea. I don't know, how, you know exactly who borrowed from who in the writing down of these truths, but um, this is the institution of the Lord's Supper to be taken in remembrance of Christ. Do this in remembrance of Christ. Now in the Old Testament, one of the most frequent commands is to remember. You know, it's, it's common for God to say, remember. And he's pointing back to some work that he's done in history, oftentimes the deliverance from Egypt. Remember this. I'm the God who delivered you. I'm the God who rescued you and saved you. And I'm the God who redeemed you. And of course, the emphasis is always on the remembrance of the past to deepen their love for God and their present obedience. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And... What he, when, when he uses the word remembrance, he should be calling to mind and is calling to mind the Passover meal, where they remembered their deliverance from Egypt and that God passed over them in His wrath and delivered them. Okay, and so um, I've summarized the Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, but in Exodus twelve thirteen. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then in verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what he's saying is, this is now the memorial. This is now the memorial, but of something greater than blood of just an animal lamb on a doorpost, but memorialize my shed blood that saves you and causes God to pass over you in His wrath and delivers you. So when Jesus in this moment says, this, this is the cup that is poured out for you, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He's instituting a new meal and a new celebration that is greater and different than the old. And the old comes to an end. A greater Passover has come that doesn't just deliver from Egypt. A greater Passover has come that delivers your souls. I am the Passover lamb. I am the Passover lamb. Not the lamb without blemish, merely the animal lamb, but I am the great Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Eat in remembrance of Me. Eat in remembrance of Your deliverance from your slavery to sin and the enemy, memorialize my death in love to you forever. And so what Jesus is saying here in this moment of an actual old Passover, He's instituting a new Passover meal for Christ's church. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover meal for Christ's church church now big outline today so a little different ten truths to magnify Christ in our church during the celebration of the Lord's Supper you have ten you got your pen ready because if you don't write them down you won't remember them it's okay if you don't remember them all anyways ten truths to magnify Christ in our church during the celebration of the Lord's Supper first The goal of the Lord's Supper is the worship of Jesus. That's the goal. The reason we do it is the worship of Jesus. When when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, what, do this in remembrance merely of your sins? That's not the point. Do this in remembrance of me. Of who I am and what I came to do for you. Do this as a remembrance of me. And in that remembering is the adoration and worship of Jesus Christ. And um, one author said, the highest form, hear this, the highest form of Christian worship is the Lord's Supper. The highest form of worship, corporate Christian worship, is the Lord's Supper. And so nothing exalts the person and work of Christ in a greater way than the constant remembering and gratitude and celebration of the grace of Jesus Christ that's been given to us to forgive us of our sin. When we partake by faith, this meal together, it causes us to remember the cross. And we say to Jesus, You are the one with faith who has dealt decisively with our sins. You are the one who yourself said on the cross, It is finished. You are our Savior and our Lord. You are the treasure of our hearts. You are the one whom we feast on. You are our soul's nourishment and our soul's salvation. Psalm 130, verse 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And in the remembering of Christ's gracious work and the forgiveness that comes is the fear of God, the worship of God, the adoration of God, Jesus Christ Himself. In Exodus chapter 12, after the institution of the original Passover, when this is being explained, this is what it says. This is what the people did. It says in Exodus 12, 27, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so the goal, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, is the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the primary goal and end of what we do when we partake of this meal. Secondly, this, it's a sacred meal. It's a sacred meal. It's sometimes why you hear it called Holy Communion. It's a meal that's different than any other meal. When you you sit down at your table with your family to have dinner, you eat food that sustenance for your body. But there's only one meal like this that you actually eat that is designed and instituted by God Himself And our Lord Jesus, that is actually nourishment for your soul. There are many means of grace that God has given us to nourish our souls, but only one meal like this. This is a meal of sanctifying grace. It's a meal of sanctifying grace unlike any other meal that we partake of. In it, God furthers our love for our Lord. In it, God gives us actual strength for obedience to Him. In it, He furthers our praise. And in our obedience, we are blessed. It's really important This sacred meal that's different than any other thing is unlike any other thing that we do in its ability to deepen our love for our Lord. It's important when we say it's a sacred meal also to remember that this is a meal that is for Christians. The Lord's Supper separates the church from the world. The Lord's... Supper separates, right? Jesus didn't invite everybody in to the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's a sacred meal. It is for those who are trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. So, as much as those who are in Christ find the gladness of remembering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it also separates. It's sacred. thirdly this it's a physical it's a physical way in which we smell taste and see the gospel we've kind of lost in our american christianity that god actually uses physical things you know like kneeling in prayer It's a useful thing God has given us to help us pray. Or raising our hands in worship is a physical thing that God has given us to help our worship. You know, God uses physical things. And and so uh, the two ordinances in the church, the baptism, baptism and the Lord's table, are two physical things that God uses to make visible the gospel, and the essence of it is um, that Christ's work for us is so real we can taste it, so to speak. Christ's work for us is so real we can see it and taste it. It's as real as our senses. And Jesus gave the symbols: the, the bread and the fruit of the vine. The bread being broken. Because of His body broken for us. That's what Jesus says, right? And He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, he, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is My body which is given for you. And certainly the, the body of Christ was broken for you. Struck on a head with a reed, flogged by the Roman soldiers, crowned with the crown of thorns pressed into his skull, carrying his own crossbeam, after his flogging and then being nailed on a tree nails driven through his hands and feet and hanging there suffering in his body having to lift himself up his back rubbing on the cross having already been whipped lifting himself up just to get a breath because death from crucifixion was by asphyxiation it was suffocation with slow suffocation. And the broken bread, this is my body given for you. The symbolism is rich. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the other in really important passages in the gospels, but in First Corinthians ten eleven, there's there's one loaf or one bread. And this one bread is a symbol that, you know, broken into many pieces. This one bread is a symbol that we are many, and yet we are one in this local body of believers in Christ. the fruit of the vine, Jesus says, expanded it on a little bit in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out. And the the pouring even. The pouring out of the juice is the picture of Christ's blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So the, the point I want you to remember is the memorial do this in remembrance of me is very physical to help us understand that the work of Christ for us, the grace we have received in the Lord Jesus, is as real as what the, the symbols that I hold in my very hands and partake of and taste and eat. Fourth, this. The Lord's Supper is a meal marking our unity together in this local body. Right? It is important that you remember. It is for those who are trusting in Christ. It's not for those who are still in a state of unbelief. The goal of that is not to be harsh or to be unnecessarily exclusive, but it is to follow Jesus' commands to treasure, to treasure by those who have trusted in His grace, what He has done for them, and so it marks the unity of our church, and it also unifies the church in a fresh way, remembering that the one thing that unifies us as a church is Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there's like a million things that come up that we kind of find our unity and friendship around in the life of the church that are completely insufficient. Christ is our head, and Christ is the one who unifies us and makes us one. This is where it is in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Meaning, the one loaf, bre- the one loaf broken symbolizes our many, yet oneness is a local body of Christ together. And I just want to encourage you, it's really important that we don't find unity or try to find unity in any lesser thing. We'll have things in common, and others will have things that are not as in common as that. None of those things should ever define our unity. We are a people marked off by the Lord Jesus Christ, and this supper is that mark that we remembered, that helps us remember that. And since it's a meal marking our unity together in a, as a local body, it's important. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Let me read this. In the church in Corinth, the Lord's table was a complete mess, you know, and so they were using wine, and some were drinking, you know, some were downing the wine like it was water and getting drunk at the Lord's table. Some were coming to the Lord's table hungry. You know, and I, it it seems funny if it wasn't such a serious problem. It's funny because the picture that comes to my mind, it's like, you know, the bread is mine, and they were eating it as if this was actually the meal that was supposed to actually physically nourish them. And this is why the Apostle Paul's like, "Can you not eat at home? If you're hungry, go home and eat at home. It's not what this is about." And so that's the context. There's all kinds of disunity. There's all kinds of selfishness in the practice of the Lord's table in Corinth that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. But this is what he says, beginning in chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. you know, The Apostle Paul didn't say, well, grace and peace. I'm just so tired of hearing pastors say that for crying out loud. Where's the pastor who will say, no, I do not commend you in this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be something we come together that's for the better. But you come together as a church thinking only of yourselves. what he says. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, you know, We're not even using fermented grape juice at this point. So nobody's probably going to get drunk off of the small cup that we serve. And as far as I know, nobody's ever reached in like in order to feed themselves and just grabbed the handful of bread. You know. But it certainly causes us to think about is our life given to selfless love of Jesus Christ church is our life given to selfless love of Jesus Christ church it certainly deals a death blow to the what i can find that's for me Uh, this just doesn't fit me. Uh, this just doesn't fit me. It certainly deals a death blow to all of the selfishness that we would continue on in as a body that just neglects the people of Christ. Now, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper here in Luke chapter 22, He doesn't give, he doesn't give any notes about how often this should be done. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us anything right here. You know, He just says, do this in remembrance of me. And so are we supposed to do it once a month or once a quarter? Or is it supposed to follow the Passover once a year? You know, what... And so we have to understand that we get more detail as the New Testament revelation comes down the line. And I want to say this, this is number five, the pattern in Scripture is weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. And I think it's fairly unarguable that the actual pattern in Scripture is weekly observance of the Lord's Table. Now, you're not going to get that from Jesus' words here, but as it's understood, Luke, and then through Acts and the early church and what they were doing, that's the scriptural pattern. For instance, in Acts 2.42, remember when all the people were saved? And then what did they do in Acts 2.42? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, um, the breaking of bread, I believe, is a technical term for the Lord's Supper. They came together for the breaking of bread. And so if we use the phrase like we broke bread together and it just means we had dinner, that's not entirely what's being understood here. It's a technical term for the Lord's table. Acts 20, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, so what did they do? They broke bread together, okay? This is like with prayer and the Apostles' teaching, the things we do in the weekly gathering. You say, well, where do we get the weekly gathering? On a, in a, how about Acts 27? The, the Apostle Paul writes, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, it's fascinating, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, when we are gathered together to you know, sing five songs. He prioritizes what's absolutely of supreme importance in the life of the church. We are gathered together to break bread. Or 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, as often as you drink it. Now the point isn't to do it infrequently when he says that. In the context of 1 Corinthians, which we've already read, the reason this is such a problem is probably because it was happening week after week after week. As often as you drink it, a little note historically. So I think the pattern in Scripture is weekly observance of the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table or Holy Communion. Historically, Calvin, um, for instance, believed this that the Lord's Supper should be a weekly observance in Christ's church. That's what he believed. Or he at least believed that was the scriptural pattern. I don't know if he believed that it had to be done that way, but he certainly believed that it was the scriptural pattern. But they didn't celebrate in Calvin's Geneva the Lord's table every week. <laughs> and the reason that they didn't do it, it's kind of funny, you ready for this? Right, Because they gave such time to it and such importance to it that... Uh, um, sermons for the Lord's table would be a couple hours long and he just pastorally didn't think the people would go for it (laughs) you know it's like we talk about how consumeristic we are today and all these kinds of things right Right? that's the way it's always been it's the way it's always been you know I mean, like in America, it's like criminal to think that you would ever have a two-hour worship service, right? The goal is thirty minutes in the pulpit, get out, make sure you fit everything in from ten to eleven o'clock, move on. You know, don't you know we have another service to get started in twenty minutes, kind of thing, you know? But then there's no consistency historically either. Here's Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, My witness is, and I speak the mind of many of God's people now present, that coming, as some of us do, weekly to the Lord's table. So in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they celebrate the Lord's table weekly. Okay, We do not find the breaking of bread to have lost its significance. Now, what is he saying? Right? Because a lot of the reasons why we say we don't celebrate the Lord's table every week is because it will lose its significance. It will become more meaningless. That's, a, that's like a common argument. Okay? And so he's addressing that. It will have bread to have lost its significance. It is always fresh to us. I've often remarked on the Lord's Day evening. Now, here's the implication. So, But they do the Lord's table on Sunday evening. And that's, that matters for just the amount of time that we have in a gathering. But it's always fresh to us. I've often remarked on the Lord's Day evening, whatever the subject may have been, Whether Sinai has thundered over our heads or the plaintiff's notes of Calvary have pierced our hearts, it always seems equally appropriate to come to the breaking of bread. Shame on the church that she would put off to once a month and mar the first day of the week by depriving it of its glory in the meeting together for fellowship and the breaking of bread and showing forth the death of Christ till he comes. Those who know the sweetness of each Lord's Day celebrating his supper will not be content, I am sure, to put it off to less frequent seasons. So the biblical pattern is weekly, but historically, there's not a perfect consensus. And so you say, well, what are we doing? Here's just what I'll say for us. Okay? I'll say, I think my study of this this week has elevated the Lord's Supper to kind of a, a deeper and richer level for me in my own heart and life. Um, and I would just say, we have some things to think about. We just have some things that we should think about. Both in its meaning and in our practice, and in the way we do it, and do we does it actually um, give the rich symbolism that is meant to be maintained for the gospel to be made visible through it? So we're not going to do anything quickly and differently, and you know, but we have some things to think about. Right? It's not quite as easy as just going. Well, if this is the bitter, bitter, you know, if this is if this is the biblical pattern, well, let's just do it every week then. It's just not that simple pastorally, and it's not that simple for our own hearts. Why? Well, there are implications to that. You know, like for instance, if we just do it every week to do it every week, that's not good. And if we do it every week, and in order to do it every week, we have to rush past it so fast in order to do it, that's not good either. I don't want to obey the letter of the law and not its spirit. And more than that, I'm not even sure that every church that doesn't do it every week is in sin. It's just a biblical pattern. And of course, Spurgeon did it every Sunday evening. Why? Probably because there were time constraints on Sunday morning, and because he wanted to partake of the table in a a worthy manner, and most of those who knew Christ were more likely to be present on Sunday evening when many guests might be there who are there on Sunday morning. So, that's the biblical pattern, and that's kind of where we're at, and we'll keep thinking about it. First of all, isn't it good to be in a church that's growing and thinking about things? You know, um, you would never want a church that isn't actually seeking to be reformed and always reforming. You don't want a place that has like leveled out in terms of their knowledge of Christ and their practice of being the church of Jesus Christ. You don't want a place that already has all the answers and just operates according to them and never considers their own growth and change as a church. You never want that. Six, it is a joyful celebration. The goal of coming to the Lord's table... And this is why you hear me tell you I want you to come to the Lord's I want you to come and eat. I don't want you to just look at your sins and then think I'm not worthy to partake of the Lord's table. You miss the entire point. The whole point is you are unworthy. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that tells you come partake of this table. Don't sit there in your chair and beat yourself up over your sins. Thinking that's the thing that should keep you away. Like the one qualification that you have to have to partake of the Lord's table is that you're a sinner and that you know it, right? Know it in a way that trusts in Christ. It's a joyful celebration. The goal isn't to just think about our sins and beat ourselves up over it, that's not the goal. The goal of the supper is the joyful celebration of the God of grace who's triumphed over our sin. Set us free from the rule of sin over us, who's given us new and abundant life in Christ, who's promised to his people life eternal with him, where Jesus is waiting and longing to say, I have desired to eat this meal with you. We of course, tremble because of what it cost Jesus to give us life, and we of course tremble in, in some sense because of how great our sin be, must be if this is how great the cost had to be of our for our redemption. But it is a joyful celebration we are glad because He is the Savior who's shown infinite grace to us at the goal of the lord 's table. You know, because we read, well, don't partake of it in an unworthy manner. I'm not even sure we, we all probably understand exactly what's going on there. But we're so afraid to take it in an unworthy manner that we are afraid to take it. And so be glad. The Lord's Supper looks back and it looks forward to Christ's return, number seven. The Lord's Supper looks back and it looks forward to Christ's return. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, and Jesus says, this, says something similar to this, and we'll read that in a second. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right, Jesus looks into the future consummation of the kingdom. In verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I'm going to my death and I'm returning to my Father and I will not partake of this meal with you until the consummation of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is already saying you're going to do this until I come and the kingdom is consummated and then we will be together again. So it, it... It's a confession. It's a confession of our faith that we look back and we see Jesus died for us, and that gives us hope to look forward to him coming for us. And in the present, it strengthens our obedience. Eight, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church, and the emphasis here is of the church and for the church. Now, some Protestants say the word sacrament rather than ordinance, and I I don't want you to have too big of a problem with the word sacrament as long as it's Protestant. The reason that oftentimes Christians have a problem with the word sacrament is because they're thinking about it like Rome. In Rome, right, sacramentalism, sacramentalism is about justifying grace. So you partake of baptism and mass and these kinds of things are justifying grace. That's the way Rome... That's how Rome functions. But if you're thinking about it like a Protestant, then all you mean is that this is a means of divine grace to strengthen you for your worship and obedience to God. That's all the word means. And it's not justifying grace. It's sanctifying grace. And there's a absolute world of difference between orthodoxy and truth and heresy and error between those two understandings of the word sacrament but it's for the church 1 Corinthians 11:18 for in the first place when you come together as a church so that means it's not, for, you know, it's not for a family thing. It's not for a small group thing. It's not for wedding ceremonies. It's for the church. God has given authority to His church to oversee and practice the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Ninth, I would say this. The Lord's Supper is a command of Jesus. We are commanded to do this. And every command of God is good for us. And every command of God brings blessing. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper with faith, we obey Jesus. And we receive the blessing that comes from obeying Jesus. And then I would say, number 10 is that the Lord's Supper must be partaken of in a worthy manner. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I I want you to think about this in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And uh, the point here in the context is not your body. It's the body of the church. Right? In the whole context, right? The, the problem is they're not thinking about anybody else in the body. It's a selfish operation. They've turned it into a self-serving ritual in Corinth, and Paul's condemning them for that. So examine yourself. Have you turned the Lord's table into a self-serving ritual because your life is self-serving in Christ's church? That would be the way we would have to think about this. And So you examine yourself and you confess known sin and you have way more sin than you can confess and you have way more sin than you know. So the point isn't, the point is not, if you've sinned this week, you can't partake of the table because that would be partaking of it in an unworthy manner. That absolutely can't be the point. The point has to be, I'm trying to live a Christian life. I have some sorrow over the sin that I have in my life that I can't seem to ever overcome as quickly as I think I should. Or, But, God help me, I'll grow, and I'm going to eat this meal because it will help me grow. So, my goal for this message on the Lord's Supper is that we would be able to obey Jesus with understanding about it, rather than just a formal ritualistic kind of mindset about it, and that we would lift up Christ to a higher place in our hearts as we uphold the Lord's Supper to a higher place in our hearts. So, I want to see the Lord's Supper as the highest form of our worship of the Triune God, and I want to strengthen you with the truth about what this is all about, and and let me just tell you, I've scratched the surface. I've just scratched the surface. You know, Books are written on this. I gave you ten points, but that's like I scratched the surface. I want us to see that the institution of Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover meal. Do this in remembrance This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. A greater Passover because it's the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper now together. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and... I want to just say a couple things. This is for Christians who know Christ as their Savior and Lord. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have repented and believed the good news and you have said, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus' mercy. Jesus, save me. Then this is for you. And we would encourage you to partake of that. If that's not you or it's not you yet, We just want to encourage you to think about the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and how much he's loved you. The scripture says, for God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet, while we were really lovable and worthy and deserving of all of the favor of God, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we would encourage you to repent of your sin and believe the Lord Jesus will save you and rescue you from the sin that so easily entangles you and enslaves you and makes you miserable in life. And He says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can repent and believe the good news today and Jesus Christ will be your Passover. His blood will rescue you from the judgment your sin deserves. So it's for Christians. I'd also encourage you, if you're living in submission to the elders of another local church, you're welcome to participate with us. This is not just for those who are a part of our church. The men are going to be up here, and uh, I want you to come and and bring your family with you. You don't have to leave your kids sitting in the seat. Bring them with you. This is a, a family meal. It's good for the children of the church who aren't partaking yet to be able to go through the process together with you as a family. But I would encourage you, unless your children have been baptized yet, that they should withhold also, and you should, should not serve them yet. I think the Bible teaches that baptism is the initiation right into the church. It's the initiation right into the church. The Lord's table is the ongoing rite of the baptized. I'm not saying that all works out perfectly in real time all the time. I'm just saying I think that's the pattern in Scripture. So then you're going to take the broken bread from one loaf, Because out of many, we are one. And then you're going to take the juice also. And when you take the bread and the juice, this is what we're going to do. You're going to kind of file up here, and our pastors and elders will be up here and serve you. Take the bread and the juice, and go ahead and return to your seat with it. And then we'll do what we've done in the past, um, and we'll actually partake together in just a moment. So let me pray and give thanks. And then uh, we will partake together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you so willingly gave your life. And this is a remembrance of the grace that you have shown us. It's amazing to us that with you there is forgiveness because you gave up your life for us. You endured the greatest cost. Your body was broken under the wrath of God. You said it is finished. You breathed your last. You bore our guilt on that tree. And You were raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God on high. And we await our Savior and His return to come to save Your Bride. To deliver us from our enemies and Your enemies. For You to conquer and judge the living and the dead. And we praise You that our sins are atoned for. We praise You that sin no longer rules us and we praise You that You have granted to us the gift of eternal life, life with You. Life on the new earth, redeemed and purified and judged, cleansed, washed. We praise You that You are calling people out of this world to Yourself every day to partake of this table. So thank You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.